Hello and welcome to another episode of Red Hacks, a series of conversations about journalism, socialism and being a journalist in a neoliberal world. My name is Joanna Ramiro and I have been chatting to comrades and colleagues about how it feels to be a left-wing journalist in these turbulent times. Previously on the show, we had the celebrated photojournalist Jess Hurd and the indelible author and commentator Paul Mason. If you'd like to give those episodes a listen, please visit soundcloud.com slash forward Paul Theory Other, where you can find them all in a special playlist aptly named Red Hacks. To keep abreast of all new episodes of this show and the regular Politics Theory Other episodes, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe via iTunes, Acast, Podbean, or whichever channel you usually go to for your regular podcast fix. Today we are recording from a slightly different location. We came all the way from South London to, believe it or not, the New Statesman podcast booth. And that's because of today's guest. He's a former political and now deputy editor of the New Statesman, where his coverage of Jeremy Corbyn's labor leadership earned him the nickname Woke George. You might have seen him on the telly commenting on all things Westminster and beyond. George Eaton, I am absolutely delighted to have you on Red Hacks. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So we'll start off where uh, I usually like to start off these conversations. In 2019, you're mostly known for being a fixture of the New Statesman, but your journalistic journey started well before then. So tell our listeners how you entered the enticing world of journalism or how you ended up entrapped in it. Yes. So I first thought about pursuing journalism as a career while I was at university. So I got into writing for the the student newspaper at Warwick University, and I'd always had a fascination with politics. So as a political journalist, it was the politics that came before the journalism. So I'd been chair of the Warwick Labour Club at, at university and um, in various uh, political movements as a, as, as a teenager, as, as many are. But actually, I was quite disillusioned by student politics because for me at the time, it was too dominated by careerists, essentially, people who, who weren't interested in having the kind of conversations and, and discussions and the people who were more in tune with that were at the student newspaper. So I felt much more at home there and in more relaxed environments. Student politics is also incredibly vicious. <laughs> it can it, be. It, as they say, it's, it's so vicious because the stakes are so low. Um, and then after graduating, I'd actually applied for uh, an in- internship at the New States, but had no luck. So uh, this is this is a tale of persistence in part. But I started working for a new website, um, knew at the time in 2008 called politicshome.com um, now owned by the by the conservative peer lord ashcroft but uh, by I, I emphasize not at not at the time <laughs> and that was a, a fairly um typical new news organization but it was quite unique in the sense that d- digital sites were still quite a novelty in in, in westminster then mm. so that gave me a bit of a crash course in digital journalism and then i actually emailed the current editor of the new statesman jason cowley soon after he started the job, asking if I could perhaps do some book reviews. Um, I've been an NS subscriber at university. It was always the, the title above all others that I wanted to write for. And I thought book reviews might be a, a good way to start. And to my surprise, he got back to me and said, well, actually, we're looking to take some graduates on. So why don't you come in for a chat? I had a couple of interviews and um, started at the NS almost exactly a year ago in March 2009. A year ago, I mean, 10 years ago. Ten, sorry, 10 years ago. Yes. A year ago so, would have been yeah. an interesting and rapid uh, <laughs> ascendance. 
Um, and so you, this this leads very well into the second question, by the way. Um, then then you you uh, ended up at the New Statesman, brought on as you just said by the editor Jason Cowley, and eventually found yourself editing the magazine's politics uh, blog, The Staggers. Uh, that was in 2012, a time when the Condem Coalition was in full swing. Ed Miliband was the undisputed leader of the Labour Party, and the Lib Dems had over 50 MPs. I mean, it feels like centuries away now. Um, How was it observing politics uh, at that point? Well, for me, I'd always been quite disappointed while I was at university that British politics seemed so dull by comparison with previous decades and, and with other European countries. And it felt very dull because in 2005, particularly that election, you had Labour and the Conservative both stand on on manifestos that were not far apart in terms of policy. And it felt like the parameters of the debate were very narrow. That then started to change, of course, with the 2008 financial crisis. And that, by happy coincidence, was obviously when I started in, in, in journalism. And so that felt like a turning point in that a lot of subjects around, a lot of debates around taxation, around ownership, around regulation of the economy, around the nature of capitalism itself were reawakened. And then particularly you saw after the coalition came to power, obviously the huge rows about uh, austerity. And I think you can trace, I wrote a long piece for the NS in 2017 on the prehistory of Corbynism. And I think you can trace the rise of that left movement in part to the anti-cuts protests, to movements like UK Uncuts um, and the general sense that the public realm needed a resolute defence. And so to cover all of that, and of course, the novelty of having a coalition in Westminster, um, of course, by comparison to the shocks we've seen since, it doesn't feel that radical. But at the time, it did feel like a a great change. Certainly, it was, a, I think, a very revealing moment about the the Liberal Democrats. Actually, I I was at the NS, obviously, at the time of the 2010 election. I remember quite a a first debate about whether we should... Uh, endorse the Lib Dems or Lib Dem uh, Labour packs, and 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 we didn't. We 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 endorsed Labour, and I always felt there was a misperception about the Liberal Democrats, where they were in the minds of a lot of people to the left of of Labour because mm-hmm. they opposed the Iraq War because of their stance on civil liberties. But the point on I would always fees at one yes, point. The point I would always make to people is that liberalism is fundamentally a, a philosophy that's at ease with the market economy, mm-hmm. and it was clear although he often tried to hide it, where Nick Clegg was hoping to take the party. And he was actually someone who was quite uncomfortable with a lot of the views that Lib Dem activists traditionally held. Mm. So that was, a, I think, an illuminating moment where with the, the coalition, it wasn't so much that Nick Clegg failed to persuade the Conservatives to uh, delay, austerity, to delay austerity or to moderate it or failed to persuade them that top-up fees shouldn't be increased. It was that he actually didn't want to do any of those things anyway. So for him, it was a very convenient excuse to shift his party to the right. You've already mentioned that at ENS, there was a debate over whether to support, endorse somehow editorially a possible uh, Lib Dem a Labour coalition or the Lib Dems. This is back in, in 2010. Um do you feel that once the Lib Dems came to power with the Conservatives and that sort of disillusionment with liberal ideology, as people a lot of, a lot of times saw it back then, um, also helped tread the waters between, you know, what was socialism, perhaps, or at the time just called a sort of more uh, uh, opaque left, I guess, uh, and what wasn't? Um, and how that, do you feel that had manifested itself or that ended up manifesting itself as well in the politics of, of 
yourself or the journalists around you and the way they covered things? I think it was definitely a time that the media began to open up again. Mm. For a long time, I think it was very hard for anyone who'd be considered a left journalist to get a mainstream platform such as being on Question Time. Mm. And the post-2010 era is when you saw the rise of the New States, you have journalists such as Laurie Penny, mm. um, Mehdi Hassan, who are now well-known in in the US and have travelled well, well beyond these shores. And that was partly because the politics of left and right became clear again around economic questions that for a long time that debate was was dormant and ed miliband winning the the labor leadership was also a key event in the sense that he was someone who clearly felt the new labor project wasn't one he just wanted to tweak or moderate perhaps in the way that gordon brown had appeared he wanted to abandon it mm. now i think the problem he found is it wasn't clear always what he wanted to replace it with and he had contradictory impulses. But all of these factors, I think, combined to re- reopen the terms of economic debate mm-hmm. and to create a sense of, of greater friction between between the left and right, rather than this rather cosy centre that, that you had pre-crash. I mean, again, I, I remember the, the, the leadership election in which Ed Miliband came to power and against his, against his own brother, obviously, that stirred a lot of debate. Perhaps this is jumping a little bit ahead in the conversation, but do you feel that a lot of our, you know, center, left of center media is still very much, or, you know, the sort of media that targets that demographic is still very much stuck in a world in which uh, the Labour Party is led by a man who does not support the new Labour project, but also does not necessarily have a fundamentally uh, profoundly... Uh, what's the word, reforming project, like one could argue Jeremy Corbyn and the movement behind him has? I think that's an interesting question. I think in terms of the British media and the left, one thing I'd often remind people of is that The Guardian, a bit like the the Lib Dems actually is, has always been seen as as an inherently left-wing title and as the natural paper of choice for for the left. But I'd often remind people that The Guardian was founded as a liberal paper in the 19th century. And that's quite a different tradition to the Fabian socialist tradition from which the New Statesman emerged in, in 1913, more than more than a century ago. Um, and I think that's one reason why The Guardian did endorse the Liberal Democrats in, in 2010, felt comfortable in doing so. And one reason why it's sometimes had an an uneasy relationship with the with with the Corbynite left, as mm. as the NS has in different ways, mm. um, because I think there are some at the paper who still see it essentially as a as a title to promote liberal values and who don't feel any any particular loyalty to to Labour or to or to to socialism, despite the perception that that's the natural position for the Guardian. Mm. And similarly, the Independent obviously isn't a, a, a daily print paper in, in the way it was in the past, but Again, it was founded in the in in 1986 as a sort of skeptical liberal title. Again, not a natural paper of 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 the left. Uh, this is an interesting point, perhaps to turn into your own history. Then, um, and and I'll, I'll give a bit of personal insight. You know, not so long ago, you mentioned in a conversation. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but that you were spending your free time reading old copies of the New Left Review. <laughs> uh, which I think is the sort of thing that not even Orthodox Trotskyists tend to do. Uh, at the same time, 
and and I think this is interesting to perhaps illustrate uh, this this trajectory that you're referring to in in your own uh, life. You were at one point a vocal supporter of the Houston Manifesto, and for the listeners who don't know what it is, it is a 2006 document that called for a political realignment of, and I'm quoting here, Democrats and progressives in support of, among other things, a two-state solution in the Israel-Palestine conflict and a democratic reform in Iraq. Um, the document in particular was at a time heavily criticized by the so-called far left um, as a product of new labor, and it was seen as an attack, attack on the left's institutions and campaigns, particularly the Stop the War Coalition. Um, how do you square these two Georges, you know, the 2006 Houston Manifesto signing and the 2019 New Left Review reading, George <laughs> So on the Houston Manifesto, I, I I did sign it, not um not when it was uh, originally published. There was, and I was never particularly prominent in that grouping. So I know they used to have meetings. I never I never went to any of them. The reason I signed it at the time is because I felt a strong commitment to what I see as values of secularism and internationalism, and I felt uneasy with what I saw as the somewhat simplistic position that that I felt some on the left were taking on foreign policy where they would essentially align themselves often with forces who were defined by what they were against, mm-hmm. be it against, against the US rather than by what they were for. So I was always quite attracted to the slogan, the international socialists, a forerunner of the socialist workers party had it during the cold war, which was neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. And I felt parts of the left, not all of the left, of course, by any means, Parts of the left, I felt, were too defined by their opposition to to the US, rather than having a, a vision of a of a leftist movement which would, yes, oppose uh, American foreign policy and Israeli foreign policy and 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 the foreign policy of the West more generally when when justified, but it would also stand up for secularists, for feminists in in the Middle East and elsewhere, and that would would champion their causes. I, I sometimes felt there was almost an implication that doing that was a kind of cultural imperialism when I for me that's the that that should be the left's natural role is is if the left doesn't stand for for solidarity with others overseas who are fighting for the rights that we enjoy here then I'm, I'm not sure what what the left is for mm. do I regret signing the use of manifesto now perhaps in the sense that I think it was very much associated with what came to be known as a pro-war left mm. so that was the group of commentators yeah Christopher Hitchens, Nick who actually Cohen. interviewed before his death in, in 2010, mm. uh, Nick Cohen, David Aronovich, um, and others, who are, a lot of whom are still quite prominent. But I'd, I marched against the Iraq war. That was actually the first ever protest march I went on, 15th Same. of February 2003. I think it's the biggest protest in, in British history. Oh, and two countries apart, me and Lisbon. <laughs> were you you're in London? Did you come I to London? I was in London, yeah. As, as a school student at the time? Yes, I was at school at the time, yeah. So I would have been about 16 then. And I certainly don't regret uh, marching against the Iraq war there. And, and at the time I signed the Unison Manifesto, certainly didn't feel I'd somehow got, got Iraq mm. wrong. But I think this is part of the complications of, of, of politics is that it's often quite hard to handle nuance. So I was trying to simultaneously um, be against uh, the Iraq War and, the, and and a lot of the consequences and and and, and um, uh, terrible consequences that flowed from that, but also to not be soft on what I saw were, were some of the erroneous thinking of of parts of the left. Essentially, trying to be 
both against against the US, but I would say also against the simplistic, dogmatic, anti, anti-American left. I mean, I find it very interesting because we've already, in a relatively short period of time we've been uh, talking, pinpointed a series of events and political movements on the ground that have fundamentally shifted uh, the p- political perception of our generation, so-called millennial. We both just, just talked about how uh, the anti-war movement uh, mobilized this. And again, I mean, have to emphasize we're both journalists and self-defined left wing in some shape or form. Um, the, the anti-Iraq war movement was probably what mobilized this first. Uh, you just said for me it was the same thing uh, at the time uh, in, into a sort of more left wing uh, perspective. Then you had uh, the crash. Uh, for me, it was also the student movement here of 2010, 2011. Um, you have the anti-austerity movements. All of these things have have shaped uh, our generation's uh, view on politics and on how politics operates as, you know, not just politics as usual, I guess. Um, how do you think this influences people, uh, journalists, again, from, from of our age or younger, um, when they come into, into into the world of journalism or, or the world of journalism they came into over the last decade or so? Well, I think it helps having an understanding of political movements and activism. I think had more of the, the national media in advance of the 2015 Labour leadership election had more of an understanding of the conversations and debates and and positions that were were were, were emerging in in labor activist circles then they wouldn't have been so surprised by the rise of Jeremy Corbyn for instance mm. um, the same applies to the rise of of euro of, of brexit and euroscepticism europhobia within the conservative party uh, anyone who went to a conservative conference between uh, well, the first one i went to was 2009 um, onwards would always see the fringe meetings that would be packed out would be those uh, in favour of leaving the EU or harshly critical of the of the EU. So I think too often, if your perspective is confined to to Westminster and to the mood in the parliamentary party, you don't actually get a sense of of where the parties are going more widely. And of course, in the case of of Labour, particularly after the, the rule change brought in by by Ed Miliband, the Conservatives more generally, it is the activists who ultimately determine who becomes uh, the leader. Yeah, uh, we've already talked about in part um, how there is a dissonance, a cognitive dissonance between what uh, certain uh, media channels that uh, you would define as left wing. Um, actually have as an editorial position. But I kind of wanted to bring that back again to you and your trajectory in the New Statesman versus versus those. Um, and in a recent interview with Cambridge's uh, student paper Varsity, you said, and I quote, I've always had an interest in Marxism. I think as a school of thought, it retains a lot of analytical power. You know, when we look at perceived New Statesman's uh, natural companions, uh, so The Guardian, The Independent, Prospect, uh, little to no attention has been paid to this school of thought in the last five years or so, while the appetite for it seems to have grown in the last few years. And meanwhile, at The New Statesman, you've been promoting voices like socialist economist Grace Blakely, yourself have been going around interviewing people such as Slavoj Žižek and Yanis Varoufakis. You wrote a huge piece on Rosa Luxemburg. I mean, could you explain again to your listeners um, perhaps this time a bit more about strategy uh, and be as critical as you feel comfortable to. Uh, what do you think is happening in the mainstream left media landscape that allowed you to move into this space and hasn't allowed others to? Hmm. 
So in terms of Marxism, I, I, I have genuinely always had an, an interest. And actually, it was the first thing which sparked my interest in politics when I would have been about 13 or 14. And that was actually from listening to bands um, such as the Manic Street Preachers, Radiohead, bands whose lyrics would have a political edge to them. And in Manic Street Preachers songs, I would hear Soviet leaders, Lenin, Trotsky, and so on, referenced. And I was always someone who would devour lyrics. So any reference to something, a concept or person I didn't know, I would look it up. And that's when I discovered Marxism. And and obviously for a young person, as for so many, its egalitarian ideals have a, have a natural attraction. But in terms of Marxism today as a school of thought, and this is something that some free marketeers would say as well, is that it does offer you a way of analysing the, the economy in a more rigorous fashion than more mainstream accounts do. And I think it's been very interesting that last year, to tie in with the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth, you saw articles being written in titles like The Economist and, and The FT mm. saying why Karl Marx remains relevant today. Because although he was he underestimated capitalism's resilience and he also overestimated the capacity for revolution in, in, in the most industrialised countries, Britain and Germany. Mm. He was right about some of the inherent weaknesses of capitalism, which were, of course, dramatically demonstrated in, in, in 2008. Its tendencies to monopoly, its maldistribution of wealth, its cyclical crises. All of those have come back with, with a vengeance. And I think... Marxism is one perspective, not the only perspective, but one perspective that can offer illuminating insights into into those economic trends. On the New Statesman side, I would say a key shift for me in terms of giving greater space to these issues was in 2017, I moved to a slightly different role. So I started editing a section in the print title called Observations, which is a section of the magazine devoted to ideas, to trends, to to concepts, to interviews, to profiles. And I took it in a more left-leaning, more, more cerebral direction, partly because I'd always wanted to explore those issues further. But having previously written the weekly politics column, um, which is more in the traditional Westminster mould of, of journalism, um, and obviously covering all the tumultuous events there, there hadn't necessarily been a huge amount of time to devote that, to that. But also after the 2017 general election, when Labour got its highest share of the vote since 2001, the biggest increase in share of the vote since 1945, on, of course, probably its most left-leaning manifesto since 1983, those ideas felt much more relevant to British politics. Mm. And it felt it didn't feel so eccentric to give them space anymore in a, in a British a weekly political title. Do you feel like it also served as an escape valve almost from that bubble, that Westminster bubble, that constant thinking of the daily, you know, the bills, the parliamentary procedures, the the rituals, and to actually look at things from, from a sort of wider angle, uh, sort of macro narrative in a way? Um, and did that feel really refreshing for someone who covers politics all the time in Westminster all the time? Yes, I would say so. I I think it is useful to spend four four or so years as I did as a as a lobby journalist because it does give you a much more rigorous understanding of how Westminster works and how how the media operates. And although 
the lobby has lots of flaws. There are lots of um, good journalists working there who who who's, who genuinely aren't, aren't looking to do down one party or the other. They're, they're, they're trying to, to report in often quite difficult circumstances. But the challenge with Westminster is it can narrow your horizons rather than mm. expand them. That Inevitably, there's a lot of groupthink. Um, both the media there and, and the uh, political class are not as representative or diverse as, the, as they should be. Ideas which are quite mainstream among the, the electorate are still seen as, as, as incredibly radical. I mean, a point I would often make during the Miliband era, which I think you can relate to the later rise of Corbyn, is that people used to refer to Ed Miliband sometimes pejoratively as a socialist. Um, in 2013, when he responded to a question on when are you going to bring back socialism, he said, that's what we're doing. And that was seen as an incredibly radical thing for him to say. But the point I would make is that, well... If Ed Miliband's a socialist, then then so are most of the British public. <laughs> because if anything, the electorate would they were to the left of him. So yeah. there was always in the opinion polls large majority support for the renationalisation of the privatised utilities, mm, yeah. for raising taxes on high earners, for tougher regulation of the banks, for a higher minimum wage. And so it was no surprise when Jeremy Corbyn embraced these positions and Labour, Labour did under his leadership, there was no surprise that there was uh, popular support for them and that far from, from harming them, uh, it increased their popularity. Yeah, I, I've heard repeated a few times in conversations with um, staffers of the Labour Party, particularly, you know, in sort of front bencher staffers, um, that actually, certainly in the beginning, and certainly in 2017, they had a very easy job, because they were not putting forward anything that the British public hadn't already survey after survey been supporting. So, so that was a really interesting thing to notice, uh, them saying over and over again. Um if we go back to, to journalism just a wee bit and perhaps now in a more sort of broad stroke, um, you know, you've been a decade at the New Statesman. Um, you've been a left-wing journalist in quite interesting times. Um, what would you say left-wing journalism has done right in this period, has done wrong, and is certainly yet to do? I mean, if we think about the things that you support when, when in your work and the sort of things you'd like to see more of. Not just from you, but in general. Mm. So I think, in terms of what I speak for the the NS, I suppose in, in in this regard, we made some big judgment calls. For instance, I mean, one was on on austerity um, back in two thousand nine, when the Conservatives in in opposition at the time first promoted the idea of austerity. We warned that it would be both economically and politically self defeating. Mm. Economically, because it would suppress growth. And far from allowing the UK to to eliminate the deficit, it would make it harder to reduce debt sustainably in in the long run. And then politically, because it would polarise further an already divided country. And you see the legacy of that in in Brexit. And from a Conservative perspective, the, the, the rise of Corbyn, for them, that is a, a great danger in terms of the prospects of a genuinely left-wing uh, party getting in mm. getting into power. So... But at the time, there were mainstream commentators who thought austerity was entirely commonsensical. Mm. That to take a stand against policies from the start, I mean, everyone is now saying, oh, austerity went too far, austerity was a mistake. Including mm. um, Conservative MPs or yes. former Conservative MPs. So it's, it, everyone, hindsight is, is a blessing. Everyone can say that now. Mm. So I think uh, we took a clear stand on that at, at, at the time. 
we also we were always critical of um, the excesses of the the European project. We always said that we thought the euro was uh, a, a doomed project, uh, or not maybe not a doomed one, but certainly uh, um, uh, a contradictory one in having a monetary union without a, a fiscal and and political union. And so you've seen the consequences of that since in terms of the rise of um, anti-European parties and, and, and sentiments across Europe. Um, and then I would say on on Brexit, um, similarly, I think our stance has, has held up well. We warned that there was no better model available to, to Britain immediately than EU membership. I think that's been proved essentially it, there are no good options now. Hmm. Um but we also we also warned that it was too simplistic for Remainers simply to assume that there was a great appetite um, for a second referendum, um, and that it would be and people would rush to embrace Remain after um, Leave's contradictions mm. and um, broken promises were were exposed. Again, in terms of coverage, how do you feel that can be better done? I mean, I'll, I guess I'll I'll rephrase this. In the sense that if if what we're looking is to uh, push back, as sometimes, particularly in a certain type of media, very conservative, ultra-conservative, right-wing, uh, uh, almost propagandistic narrative, what does, what, what do left-wing journalists have to do more of? Um, not only in terms of, of analyzing some of the policies you've just outlined more particularly, but also in terms of what they actually have to do in practice. Mm. Uh, and what perhaps do certain more mainstream publications that would tend to employ some of these people have to do um, in order to remain relevant? So I think there's several strands to this. I think yeah, one this is, is certainly... several layer question, so yeah. sorry. I think some of it is doing more reporting that for a while... I did worry that journalism, particularly on the left, perhaps, was risked falling into the cult of the op-ed. Mm. Everyone, yeah. at one point, it seemed, was writing a piece for, for comments is free. <laughs> and actually, there's great value in, in reporting. We've been doing it recently, a series called Crumbling Britain, um, where our, our writers such as um, Anusha Kelly and our senior writer, or Patrick Maguire, political correspondent, and others visit parts of the country which tell a story about uh, a particular strand of austerity and and it and its disastrous economic and, and social consequences and clearly as i said earlier i think had there been more grassroots reporting more journalists might have picked up on labor's leftward shift and the conservatives rightward shift earlier then i think to offer expertise unashamedly not to not be afraid to um to address your audience at a at a, at a high conceptual level because I actually think that there is an appetite for that and I, I think the newspapers are rather hampered by their traditional format where something's either a story in which case it's it's a, it's it's a written for the news piece in the very traditional style or it's an opinion piece mm. um they might have the occasional long read actually I think there's a richer terrain to be explored something that's neither a, a, an opinion piece it doesn't necessarily necessarily have to be a have to be a, a, an incredibly long piece either but that takes an idea or concept or uh, and explains analyzes a trend that's certainly what i try to do in the in in the section of the magazine i edit observations um 
where I've been writing on um, on left thinkers, Rosa Luxemburg, Gramsci, and but also we we keep an eye on on movements on the right as well. I mean, what are the what are the intellectual trends that are who are, who are, who are the thinkers they're exploring? What are the what are the books they're reading? I think there's a huge appetite for that, and I think there's a big appetite for detailed policy examinations. So, and Grace Blakely, who you mentioned earlier, our, our economics commentator. She's probably um, best known for um, her, her broadcast appearances and for for uh, the column she writes, um, uh, the weekly column she does for the NS. This this week's magazine, she's done a a, a lengthy two and a half thousand word piece on on the economic uh, trends which risk tipping the world into a new recession. Why we're not not prepared for that mm. you're a very detailed piece full of full of data story. and fascinating interviews with with economists and there's been a lot of interest in that from both people on, on the left but also from from people on the right because actually it's all too rare these days in a mainstream publication that you'll get a, a lengthy examination of, of of the global economy mm. rather than just a, 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 a standalone mm. column state of fact yeah, yeah. so so i think reporting offering expertise and not being afraid to present your ideas in, in in an intellectual manner because I genuinely think that and partly this is a reflection of, of the dramatic increase in the university um, body mm. uh, of the student body mm. um, that that's created a new mass audience for for I would say ideas based journalism I mean particularly a uh, uh one could argue a uh, disillusioned uh, graduate demographic because the expectations and the promises they were made once they went into university didn't quite, you know, crystallise once they came out of university and graduated and were looking for a job and went into labour market. So, so absolutely. I mean, like this is this is a bit of a trope now. Uh, thankfully, I guess that it's a mainstream uh, rhetoric that we know that um, our generation has been widely underemployed. Um, okay. To sort of start rounding up, what is next for George Eaton? Well, I was obviously delighted to become deputy editor at the end of 2018, having been political editor for about four and a half years. Uh, as I said earlier, the NS was the title that I always wanted to write for as as a student. I was always attracted to the idea of a weekly magazine that can interrogate issues with greater depth than than a newspaper. And obviously, the NS has a has a fantastic history. Mm. You do have the permanent sense of standing on the shoulder of giants, and to write in the same title that people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez did, mm. and in which so many pioneering um, political movements and and schools of thought have have originated it is is quite a privilege, and. It stayed interesting, so that's partly because I've been able to 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 move up and to to do different things, but also because, as I said, I think partly because of how political debate, intellectual debate, has opened up, but also because of how the media landscape has changed. Mm. The NS feels an incredibly vital place at the moment, both online and and as a weekly print title. I think the the, the combination of, the combination of being able to take the long view in 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 a weekly fashion as as we have done since 1913, but to also react in real time to 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 events online is great. I mean, I think mm. it would have been a much less interesting place to work um, in the past because the weekly magazine would come out and that's it. That's your hit for the week. 
you don't get another chance until the next issue. Um, whereas now you can pursue all the angles that, that occur to you um, in between issues. And also, I, I, I think genuinely we've got, at the moment, the strongest team we've had uh, since I've been here. And it's obviously inspiring to work with so many talented young journalists. I've always enjoyed working in a relatively small team as well. So a team of about 20 journalists or so, rather than in, in some monolithic newspaper operation where it's very hierarchical and it's years before you'll be able to have time with the editor to suggest ideas. And Jason Cowley, my editor, one of his strengths has always been that he's very receptive to ideas, whether you've been at the ANS for years or whether you've been there for, for weeks. So in that sense, it's, it's very open and quite innovative place to work. So what's next for me is to try and make the, the NS as strong as it can be, because I genuinely think there's still much further it can go. Uh, circulation is, is healthy. It's the highest it's been for, for 40 years. Um, but we still got further to go to, to attain the, to attain the heights that the NS had it had in the past when it was, when it was selling over a hundred thousand copies. Um, so that's a case of, um, selling our, our, our journalism in, in the best way we can. And then, I suppose in a more overarching sense, then it's sometimes a grim time to be a journalist because certainly the UK has seen better days than than now. I mean, we're, we're led by a both tragic and farcical government mm. and and somehow it man often manages to be the worst possible combination of, of the two. But also, of course, it's a privilege to be a journalist at the time like this because you can have impact you can have influence and you have the ability to to scrutinize power to publish inconvenient truths um for all parties at various points um and to promote the values that the ns has always stood for internationalism egalitarianism rigor skepticism the pursuit of truth that's uh that's a that's a that's a great that's a great calling and there's also a sense in which particularly when the media itself is facing such such troubles to be somewhere that has managed to to not just survive but to, to in some ways to thrive and and, and to undergo a, a renaissance is uh is a great stroke of of fortune and and, and a great place to to practice journalism finally what are you reading at the moment, George? I am actually reading a book about Massive Attack. So right. I went to see them recently in Bristol, in their hometown, uh, for the anniversary gig uh, for the album Mezzanine, which came out 21 years ago. And it was a great gig. So I was very pleased to do my first... Very jealous. My first gig review for the NS. So I could mention earlier, actually, that I originally wanted to be a music journalist. That was the first serious title that I bought. I would have been about 13, was, was NME. And so I was obviously very sad of its of its demise. And although the, the, it only closed recently as a as a print title, it had long ago become a, a shadow of its former self. Um, the NME, the NME, and even perhaps even more so than than when I was reading it, was something much more than just a music title. I mean, they would publish serious essays and articles on politics and culture, 
um, and it had a, a great sense of the interaction between those different spheres. Um, so to finally so write my first gig you review for the... You aimed for an ME and then yeah. you landed in the States. Yeah. That's not bad, eh? No, no, not bad. No, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm quite happy with that, with, with how that worked out. So yes, the book on, um, book on Massive Attack, I then went into um, Bristol Rough Trade and, 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 and saw the book there. So that's... Uh, I mean, Bristol is an incredibly vibrant city at the moment and obviously somewhere that, that Labour did incredibly well in, in, at the last election. And um, when you're there and you, you have a sense of it's, it's cosmopolitanism, it's radicalism, it's multicultural heritage, it does give you a great sense of optimism, I think, about, uh, about the country for all the, for the many challenges it faces. Give us the title of the book, do you remember, so that we can uh, advise it to our listeners? The book is called Massive Attack, Out of the Comfort Zone. Um, and it's by the French author uh, Melissa Shemam. Fabulous. George, this was great. Thank you so much. I am John Romero, and this was another episode of Red Hacks, a show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world, hosted by Politics Theory Other Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes and leave a review. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other.